This program was brought to you by the Academy Opus Caseus, whose training programs bring cheese professionals to the next level. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today I am so pleased to welcome Nina Teicholtz, author of The Big Fat Surprise. Welcome, Nina. Hi, it's great to be here. Oh, I'm so delighted. Anyway, first I want to tell the listeners the whole title of your book, because that's a tip-off as to what it's about. It's called The Big Fat Surprise, why butter, meat, and cheese belong in a healthy diet. And I don't think I have read a more shocking or more political book during my two-year tenure as book reviewer on Cutting the Curd. My eyes kept popping out of my head. (laughs) Um, I think I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Um, First, let's summarize... I feel since this isn't a cheese book per se, this is a book that not many of my listeners are familiar with. So I would like you, Nina, first, how would you explain the major findings in this massive healthy diet research review in a sentence or two? What, would you, what do you say when asked at a party, what's your book about? My book is the first attempt to really put together the history, the politics, and the arguments to to, uh, explain why saturated fats are actually, are, are not bad for health. Those are the fats in butter, meat, cheese, dairy, eggs, and they have for 50 years been the number one culprit um, that we've been told not to eat. But it turns out that that was always based on soft science and, and really is not true. Okay. Okay. This is just to say it again in a different way. This was my try at describing what the book is about. A very in-depth science research-oriented history of how the heart-healthy diet research world got hijacked, sort of, into the wrong low-fat direction years ago, and how through a combination of egos, perhaps active conspiracy, big food money, just kept going, immune to more thorough analysis of scientific findings. And all the while, our country's health has plummeted. That's a very good. That's a very good description, <laughs> and you're absolutely right. I mean, the it, the book is. It's been called a nutrition thriller. It really attempts to tell this question that is at the center must be at the center of everyone's mind, which is why are we as a nation getting so fat and and you know sick? Right. Um, and right. we have, in fact, been following the official advice over the past. 30 years, red meat is down by 17%, eggs are down by nearly 20%, you mm-hmm. know, we've increased whole grains by 40%, mm-hmm. we've cut fat, increased, you know, we've, we've done pretty much everything that we've been told to do, and right. our health looks worse for it. Right. So uh, 
you know, the truth is we really just got the basic low-fat advice wrong. That mm-hmm. has, that has mm-hmm. not been good advice from the start, and a tremendous amount of science really exists now to show that that, 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 that diet, the diet restricted in fat and saturated fat, leads to poor health. Mm-hmm. But we're not really waking up. I, I, it doesn't seem like we're waking up very quickly. You know, the answer to that is that some people are, but our experts are not. Right. So mm-hmm. there is a groundswell of interest in traditional diets that go back to, you know, natural foods that people used to eat, butter and, and cheese and, and, you know, meat. Mm-hmm. Those are the foods that mm-hmm. people used to eat. They didn't use to pour vegetable oils invented in 1940 right. over their foods. Mm-hmm. Um so there is a groundswell of interest. There's a lot of interest in the diabetic community because it turns out that having a higher fat diet helps people get off their diabetes medication. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of interest. But at the expert level, there's a kind of entrenchment, a mm-hmm. digging in of the heels, and even a kind of doubling down on existing advice. So mm-hmm. we're the expert community is driving ever more towards a plant-based diet. Yeah, crazy. More and more plants, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, one of the really amazing findings is that, you know, that diet, that diet really has no evidence to show that it's healthy or mm-hmm. nutritionally sufficient, which mm-hmm. is even worse news. Right, right. I want to talk about um, how you got to this topic historically, because I know you've been working on the book uh, for years and years. What brought you to this topic at first? It was an article that was assigned to me by Gourmet on trans fats that really kind of, it was a uh, it was a groundbreaking article and led to a book contract. And once I started to research dietary fat, which is, you know, the subject that nutrition science has obsessed about most, good mm-hmm. fat, bad fat, how much fat mm-hmm. do we eat? I mean, we've been obsessing about it for generations. Right. I realized there was a much bigger story about all fats here. And one of the things that, that tipped me off was just finding this community of scientists who were terrified to talk about the science. It was like interviewing the mob. I would mm-hmm. get off the phone shaking, and I realized, you know, why were people so afraid to talk? Now, why do you it, mean you know, the, not an the open, people, transparent field? Do you mean the the small group of people who were going against the the main research findings? Yes, because mm-hmm. the the obvious question is is how is a bad hypothesis about what makes people healthy been able to survive for so long. And one of the answers is that the critics were silenced. They were Mm -hmm. marginalized. They are Mm -hmm. not allowed to. They weren't given research grants or their grants were taken away. They couldn't get their findings published in research papers. Mm -hmm. And those critics and people, basically scientists in the opposition, became, um, there's a fear that, Mm -hmm. that suffused through that community mm-hmm. and over the field of nutrition science generally where people are truly afraid to speak their minds. Hmm. Now weren't you progressively shocked by what you were finding? Yes, I mean, you know, I was I started out as a vegetarian when I or you know, a near vegetarian. I had mm-hmm. a little bit of chicken and fish, but mm-hmm. I really was not open to these ideas at all. Mm-hmm. And um, it took me a long time to really unfold them all and understand the corporate forces that are involved, you know, mm-hmm. the vegetable oil companies and how deeply they've been involved in influencing mm-hmm. nutrition science. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's just so often true in the course of this research, you simply cannot believe what you find. Mm-hmm. You know, I had mm-hmm. to, 
I cannot tell you how many times I would look at something that I had written and think, I need to talk to 10 more people to be sure this is mm-hmm. true because I right. can't believe it's true, Right. which is right. why the book took so long to write. Yes. I was going to ask, how long did the research take, first of all? You know, the whole book took about nine years to mm-hmm. um, do, and I'm not saying they were all fruitful years. There were years spent just cultivating sources in the vegetable oil industry, and, mm-hmm. and but it did take a really long time. There are thousands of studies in the field of nutrition science, and I really wanted to not rely on review papers, um, but go back to all the original data sources mm-hmm. and read them all myself and really dig down to mm-hmm. understand who funded them, mm-hmm. what were their attitudes, you know, what was the methodologies. Mm-hmm. That took a very long time. Right, I can imagine. Now, did you? what was your previous background in? Do you have a research degree, or were you learning as you were doing the research? I studied um, biology and was pre-med in, uh, at Stanford when I was there, and, and I had one year at Yale. But, uh-huh. um, well, that but must I have don't helped. have a degree in science, mm-hmm. and it was learning. I had a tutor in um, other science journalists who taught me about the field of nutrition. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it is, um, I have to say that I, in this field of challenging the existing ideology or dogma or prevailing hypothesis on, on nutrition, all of this has come from outsiders. I feel like if I had come up in the world of nutrition science, I would not have been able to write this book mm. because, because you know, you're taught a certain way of thinking, and it's the, really the, the outsiders are the ones who have brought a fresh view to the science. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I just say that is part of the way of my defense. I mean, it should not be a journalist writing this book. I mean, this this should be scientists, but right. they but right. you know nobody would dare to put their name to something like this. I mm-hmm. think it's part of the reason. Mm-hmm. What was your schedule like during these years? Was is this the only thing? Were you primarily working on the book, and was it an all day job? And it was. I'm also a mom. I have two mm-hmm. boys, and mm-hmm. so um, but I was home, and I would say. Um, Yes, I just worked absolutely relentlessly on this. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. really, from morning till night. And, and, and you um, can see the quality, obsessive. the quality of your, the depth and the quality of your uh, reach is impressive. I mean, you, you clearly are turning over every stone, and uh, the number of articles you reference is incredible. You know, it's a very contentious field, and. There are, you can, as everybody knows, you can go out and find nutrition studies on every side of an issue. You can Mm -hmm. find articles to prove any which way. And so for there to be some kind of definitive account, you have to leave no stone unturned. Mm And mm-hmm. really understand this is the entire universe of studies on something. Mm-hmm. So I can say this conclusively, right? Because otherwise, you're just you know you're just whipsawed by the winds of every recent study back and forth, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that's not helpful for people. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like there were you know way more studies supporting the status quo than the studies that weren't. There. That's a complex issue. There are many review papers that um, that selectively interpret the data. Yes. But but you know, take on an issue like saturated fats. There are um, 
The only reason that we think that saturated fats are bad for us is basically ignoring the vast majority of data on that subject. Mm-hmm. So, and that is really, um, and and you know, so for instance, our government report saying that saturated fats are bad for us. That formal review, they they base their conclusion on studies that involve only 85 people over in studies that last 20 to 35 days. Uh-huh. And what isn't in that reviewed in that are the all the government funded studies on on nearly 15,500 people in studies for 1 to 12 years. That's the evidence that is excluded. So there what pr- what proved their point was 85 people for a month and what didn't prove their point was 15,000 for years and so they rely on the weaker data. Yeah, that right, tiny right, sliver of data. Right, right, right. right. It, that's it, why you weren't eating butter, meat, cheese, dairy exactly. eggs, and things they are giving you heart disease. And that's why my eyes were popping out of my head because it <laughs> I just was shaking my head saying, you know, I'm, I uh, have a degree in psychology, so I had to study research, and I, so I know about, you know, control groups and a lot of what you're talking about. And it just was, how did these people get away with proving things with such limited numbers and uh, studies and ignoring the holes in them? You know, there are a number of answers to that. I think the strongest (laughs) one is that this hypothesis that fat and saturated fat cause heart disease got Mm -hmm. adopted early on by by the American Heart Association in 1961, by the entire federal government in 1980, Mm -hmm. and then it became, it was institutionalized. Right. And and institutions cannot back out on their advice. Um, They're the opposite. They do the opposite of good science. They Mm -hmm. have to be steady, not self-questioning, not flip-flopping on their publics, Mm -hmm. whereas science needs to be self-doubting and nimble and responsive to new observations. So there's it's just it's impossible, I think, for these large institutions to be the stewards of good science. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was also, of course, the influence of uh, industry right. behind this. Right. I mean, as I said, print the vegetable oil industry has been deeply involved. And, of mm-hmm. course, when you get rid of saturated fats, what it was the alternative that was recommended? Unsaturated right. fats, which right. are vegetable oils. So right. they successfully manipulated that. But it seemed like in your history that, First, the errors were made, and it was scientists that were backing them. And then, then it gained, you know, business, food, big, big food money to go along with it. Is that was that just my reading of the chapters, or you know, was that? I think- Fairly. I think the answer to that is truly unknown, but I, I because I who knows when the industry started to get involved and really fund companies. It goes way back. To, mm-hmm. You know, I, I dug up evidence back in the 1940s of okay. how the how Procter and Gamble, the maker of Crisco Oil, launched the American Heart Association as a national organization. Mm. But that said. I do think that the ultimate gatekeepers of our nutrition recommendations, our our policy, are scientists. Scientists are the ones who look at those studies, evaluate them, and should say, you know, no, this this doesn't add up. Mm -hmm. They are the gatekeepers of our recommendations, and they're ultimately to blame. Mm -hmm. Now, was there anyone who encouraged you in the heart uh, health diet world? 
What do you mean, encouraged me? <laughs> like encouraged your investigation and were, you know, kind of cheering you on and saying, yes, 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 this has been wrong for years, and please write an expose. Yes. In fact, there have been people who, um, and I write about one of them in my book, um, Ron Krause, who is mm-hmm. you know, an absolute, what, one of what I call the nutrition aristocrats, the top, top mm-hmm. tier of scientists who really are in control of nutrition policy. He um, was twice chair of the AH, the American Heart Association Nutrition Committee, which is mm-hmm. considered a plum job. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he was a major source for my book, and I think that he was happy to hear this story told, But um, as were other people. But, you know, I have to say the dominant um, feeling out there in the community is one of fear still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Did you get any official flack from the status quo? I have had the American Heart Association on the day my book came out. Um, they published a statement saying, uh, we stand by our recommendations on saturated fat and pay no attention to that book, Ooh, which they okay. didn't want to name. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I have had some blowback from um, people who are, you know, the, the defenders of the government diet. There right. is a group in Washington named Center for Science and the Public Industry that's very involved in defending those recommendations they have attacked me i mean there you know i have been i, I it's predictable i expected it mm-hmm. um to okay. be attacked and uh so you know but i think that that strategy that has worked for the nutrition aristocrats for so many decades is one they also employ towards me which is silence let's right. let's pretend she doesn't exist mm-hmm. or just tell mm-hmm. her say you know our response is she's just out to sell books or uh-huh um so there has not been, I would say what is most disappointing is there has not been to date any meaningful engagement with my arguments. Okay. I mean, just putting me aside. Bye. Um, and I wish that that would happen. But that also tells me that there, maybe there really is no response to, right. you know, maybe there is no really good defense. Right. Right. You, you've been too thorough and too convincing. I would like to think so. (laughs) Now, as a cheese lover and eater, of course, I'm delighted to think eating cheese has been redeemed. Um, But it's hard to fathom that so much of what you think could be wrong. It is hard to change our fundamental ideas that we've grown up with for so long. And, you know, I, I... sympathize deeply with that. I mean, that idea that fat makes you fat, the fat in cheese is going to become the fat on your body is so deeply ingrained, especially, you know, for all of us. Right. But it really turns out that a higher fat diet, including saturated fat, mm-hmm. is far healthier. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it leads to better outcomes for losing weight, for diabetes, for, you know, a a good number of your cardiovascular risk factors, which turn out to be the more significant risk factors. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, restricting carbohydrate, you know, right now we're told to eat basically a high carbohydrate diet between 50 and 60% of our calories is carbohydrates. That's Mm -hmm. bread, pasta, cereal, grains. Um, Those are fine for healthy people in moderation, but we've really, we've increased carbohydrates by 25% over the last 30 years, and Mm -hmm. that seems to have tipped Americans into into a series of metabolic diseases, Mm -hmm. which are obesity, diabetes, heart disease. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, well, we're going to take a short break now, and we'll be back to discuss more specifics with Nina Teicholtz, uh, author of The Big Fat Surprise. Be back soon. The Academy Opus Caseus is the cheese industry's unique center for professional development, offering training for cheese professionals ready to move their careers to the next level. The Academy is the only professional cheese school integrating hands-on practice, formal instruction, and curriculum-related visits in every course. The Academy's core courses for mongers and affineurs are offered at the Mons facilities in France, and abridged courses are offered in Vermont, California, and London. A structured discipline of sensory analysis is practiced daily. The Academy has been recognized by the American Cheese Society as an approved education center for those preparing for the certified cheese professional exam. Here's a reading of a quote from Kevin Palmaccio, a graduate of the program. The balance of time is what sets essential foundations apart from other educational opportunities. While the classroom is important, spending time at the goat farm and working alongside the Mons staff immersed us in real work and taught me real skills I've already applied in my career. As a relative newcomer to the cheese business, daily concentration on sensory analysis was paramount. As a cheesemonger, I'm now in a better position to familiarize myself with a wide range of products and sell with more confidence. For more information and to apply for courses, visit their website at academy-mons.com. That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E-M-O-N-S.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Hi, it's Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd, talking to Nina Teicholtz, who wrote The Big Fat Surprise. Nina, we're back. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. So um, one thing I thought maybe we could explain to the audience was the causality versus association uh, Quandary, and do you think that was the first, the beginning of the first errors? Um, good question. So there are basically two types of scientific studies. There's a st- kind called epidemiological or observational studies. That's one kind, and they can show associations, but they cannot prove causation. So they can show, say, Red meat eating seems to be associated with uh, higher rates of heart disease, um, but they can't show that red meat causes heart disease. Mm-hmm. And then there are other kinds of studies called clinical trials, where you actually take a group of people and you um, you feed them, and mm-hmm. you you and you have a control group, and then you can you can. You can control their diet enough so you know exactly what causes what. They can show causation. So you right. can feed one group a lot of meat, one group a little meat, and just and show See oh, how they the do. meat eating that's causing heart mm-hmm. disease. Mm-hmm. There are difficulties with both of those kinds of studies, but clinical trials are generally considered far more rigorous. Right. The problem in nutrition science is that it has been driven by this weaker 
kind of science that can mm-hmm. only show association. And it is true that that's how it all started. In the 1950s, there was a huge epidemiological study called the Seven Country Study that seemed to show a correlation, but not causation, between low amounts of meat or saturated fats in a diet and low rates of heart disease. And it was on the basis of that really that trial, that study alone that we, the American Heart Association, decided to issue recommendations to all of them to, well, at that point it was just men, middle-aged men, not mm-hmm. to eat saturated fats to prevent mm-hmm. heart disease. And that was like the little acorn that grew into the giant oak tree of advice we have today. But it was always based on just that weak mm-hmm. kind of evidence. That now, is remains a huge problem mm-hmm, today. Mm-hmm. Now, diet research is hard to conduct because controlling people, what they eat or giving them food to eat or and doing it over a long period of time is very tough. Right. So um, so that's why I think the association research is popular. That's why it's done. It's easier to give somebody a survey and say, hey, what did you eat yesterday? And mm-hmm. then check back in in 20 years and then find out who's died and who hasn't died and who died of right. heart disease. And, right. But that's there's so many problems with that research. I mm-hmm. mean, can, does any, it turns out people don't remember very well what right. they ate yesterday. Right. And or they it, lie. It's too, you know, they try <laughs> to confirm it, but it's... It's very difficult, and most of our recommendations are based on this kind of um, weak research. And when they've actually gone and tried to test whether or not the findings from those observational trials are true, in other words, can they be confirmed in clinical trials, it turns out that they fail 80 to 100% of the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they're just completely unreliable. Right. Um, And and what your your book does that I thought was particularly interesting is you go back over all these studies and you see the little things they forgot to mention that they left out. Like one of them is uh, they showed that some people were healthier, but then it turned out it was Lent. So they were eating less meat anyway. Yeah, and that's they, that original seven country study yeah, that and I they mentioned that was so important right. in formulating the American Heart Association recommendation. So their star subjects were on the island of Crete. These peasants who seemed to live forever and tilled the soil and didn't seem to eat much meat, but that's because one of the study periods when they went to look at them, it was during Lent. Right. So they were avoiding meat. Right. So, Which was wild that, you know, it was buried, you found it in the study, but it wasn't mentioned as a possible conflicting situation. You know, one of the general truths about these studies that, as I look through them is that scientists do not want to, um, they, don't, they don't want to highlight the flaws of their studies. Right. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't get you a headline or it doesn't, you can't get your paper studied if you, if you say, oh, you know, we messed up mm-hmm. and we went during Lent. Mm-hmm. So, and that turns, you know, that, uh, one, it was like being a detective to go through these studies to find mm-hmm. those little details. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we forgot to control for smoking. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, that's a huge flaw. That's a flaw right. so big that your study should not be published. And right. the scientists writing up that study knew it, so right. they don't mention it. Right. Were the were the first scientists just egotistical? There's 
definitely an aspect of sort of the great man theory driving nutrition science history, which is that the early scientists, um, there's really a, one, of the most, one of the most famous is Ansel Keys, who's really the most important nutrition scientist and the most influential of the mm-hmm. 20th century. He was a pathologist at the University of Minnesota. And he was, um, he was really an aggressive, outsized personality who had an unshakable belief in his own ideas. Mm-hmm. And he was described to me by his colleagues as, you know, you would talk to Ansel Key, you would argue with him for an hour, he could convince anybody of anything. Uh-huh. And he would, he was, he used a lot of really bamboozling tactics. He criticized people. He was relentless in his, um, his opposition to arguments that didn't agree with him. So he was a bully. He was a, he was really I I have to say he was a bully. Uh-huh. And he was very successful. Yeah. And he figures throughout the story. I mean, he seems to be one of the most uh steadfast supporters of low fat and caused the most trouble in getting it established. He was the leader of that study, the seven country study, mm-hmm. and he was um he was absolutely instrumental in then getting the American Heart Association to mm-hmm. uh, adopt the idea that saturated fats are bad for health. Mm-hmm. And and so he he was and he was involved heavily for throughout the he was in the 50s and the 60s and mm-hmm. the 70s and um and he he and his colleagues used to really relish the fight against their opponents. Uh-huh. They were really out to conquer. Mm-hmm. And he lived to be 100 years old. Died in '04, I believe, and you are mentioned in his Wikipedia uh, profile. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so, see, you're you're famous. <laughs> I can't imagine that's a favorable mention. It might not be. No, but I think <laughs> it's said that you know you've challenged some of his beliefs. Well, I'm not the first person. Right. There have been many journalists. I should mention that Gary Taubes was really the first, the pioneering uh, journalist to um, in this field. And and he wrote a, a cover article in the New York Times Magazine, I believe? He did. In, um, in 1999, I think it was, he had an article in Science Magazine that first really documented how uh, the soft science, I think it was called the soft science behind dietary fat. And uh-huh. then he followed up with a, a cover story in the New York Times Magazine in 2001. And um, that opens with the scene of people imagining, the, the top nutrition experts imagining what if they had all been horribly wrong. Nah. <laughs> um, and he's, the, he's really the... You know what I think of is the godfather of this whole field because it was those those articles triggered science scientists read them even though nobody mm-hmm. would talk about them. Uh-huh. I had a number of conversations where that mm-hmm. opened with, "If you're going to take the Gary Taubes line, I will not even talk to you." Uh-huh. But scientists read them. His ideas percolated out through the research community, and that is why we now have a body of evidence on um, carbohydrate restriction. His, you know, the idea that Gary had was that it was carbohydrates, not fat, that right. drove metabolic diseases. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk briefly about the whole trans fat thing, because that, I feel like, could be a book in and of itself. Well, that's how my book started out. Okay. And, um, the trans fat story is, so is complicated. You know, the we FDA, invented them. We invented trans fats, right? Trans fats entered the food supply in 1911 with Crisco shortening, mm-hmm. um, and there, it basically trans fats um, occur when you take a vegetable oil and you harden it. Right. It's a process called hydrogenation, and you need the hardened um, 
fat for baking. Is that is that true? For all food manufacturing, okay. you need a hard fat. You okay. know, what used to be used was almost exclusively butter and lard. Mm-hmm. Um, and then vegetable oils were invented in the early 1900s, but they, you can't use them as oils. They're greasy. They don't, mm-hmm. they, you, can't make cook, you, you can't make a cake with vegetable oils. It doesn't have the same texture. So you need a hard fat for baking, cooking, all manufacturing. Okay. And cr- uh, hardening fats through hydro- hardening oils through hydrogenation achieve that. It was an incredible advance Mm -hmm. in the history of food processing, but a byproduct of that hardening was trans fats. Right. Which are in all of them. Well, it depends on how hard your oil becomes. Okay. So, you know, there are many more in, say, a hard chocolate uh, coating than there are in in just regular vegetable oils, which are just called, it's called touch hydrogenation, just produces a little amount of trans fats. Okay, okay. And there were indications that trans fats might be bad for health going back to the 1950s. Uh-huh. Um, but there was basically a pretty um, ex- uh, extensive effort to cover up any negative health co- effects okay. um, by the vegetable oil industry until um, the early 90s, mm-hmm. and then, or even into the late 90s, and then they gave up because um, it was, the trans fats were out of the bag. Um, uh-huh. They're clearly not good for health. Now, um, why do you think trans fats got uncovered and then, you know, uh, you know, gotten rid of pretty much so easily almost compared with the whole low-fat thing? The reason that trans fats could become a uh, sort of a boogie, boogeyman is mm-hmm. that... Um, Going after them does not, I think, does not, Mm -hmm. it points the finger to uh, the food industry for obesity and diabetes, right? It's better to point that at some, uh, to somebody else rather than to point it, nutrition experts point it at themselves to say, oh, we've gotten it wrong. Okay. Um, so it's so that's why you'll see like in, you know any effort to try to point the finger at big food rather than say oh our fundamental advice to you is is wrong is inaccurate okay. we made a terrible mistake okay trans fats really serve that purpose I'm not saying trans fats are good for health but I no. certainly do not think that they cause obesity or diabetes and and all and none of that has or, or heart disease really all of that that evidence is quite weak okay. However, it's better to it's better not to use them. And the question I raise in my book is just that, okay, when you get rid of hardened vegetable oils, what replaces them? We can't go back to butter, lard, and tallow, which we used to use. You know, McDonald's used to fry their French fries in tallow. We mm-hmm. can't go back to them because they have saturated fats in them, and we still have there's still a taboo about using saturated fats to the point where literally you can't put the word healthy on your food product if you have saturated fats in it more than a gram of, per serving. Right. So what are food companies to do now? They're really in a bind, and what they're turning to are a bunch of novel, untested specialty oils with, you know, probably another trans fat in right, right. 20 years. There's something called interesterified oil. You know, you don't even want to know what oh, that, that is. Oh, that sounds scary. Um, but it's, it's a scary, novel thing that came out of a chemistry lab. Mm-hmm. And when the FDA decided to get rid of these hardened vegetable oils, they really didn't ask what would replace them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some scary consequences to that. Yeah. And what we should do is just to go back to natural fats. That's, you know, mm-hmm. why you saw Mark Bittman write a column in the New York Times saying, oh, we should have maybe a little butter and lard because he realizes that. Mm-hmm. 
But he's also saying uh, be vegan till dinner. Well, he is uh, trying to say a lot of different things. <laughs> I mean, it's um, it's difficult for the people who are defenders of the plant-based diet because where are, if, if you agree a higher-fat diet is healthier, which is sort of undeniable now, where are you going to get those fats? Right. Fats come most naturally in animal foods. You're, right. You know, right. you've got the head of Tufts Nutrition School literally saying, well, you should just pour soybean oil all over your vegetables. Mm-hmm. But... That sounds terrible and is yeah. not historically how humans have eaten. Right. Where is, is there new research happening on the diet front? Well, there's, it's very hard to get funding for real research on this issue because um, the government has is, directs its research dollars to you know, irrelevant questions like where do people snack? Do they snack? You know, what location? Or, you know, it's purposely mm-hmm. driven away from the central topics, which are mm-hmm. is, our, is our diet actually providing good health? But there is some good research that's happening. Ohio State is doing this interesting research. Um, Gary Taubes actually became a founder, that journalist became a founder of a center called NUSI, which is actually funding clinical trials to do some of the some original research. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still it remains hard to get good mm-hmm. to get money to do this kind okay. of research. Now, what's your feeling about gluten free? You know, I haven't reviewed the science on that, so I'm reluctant to say anything on it. But I, I do know that you know, in general, when people reduce carbohydrates, they feel healthier in many mm-hmm. different ways. Gluten, mm-hmm. I think, in some ways, is a marker for carbohydrate intake. When people reduce the foods with gluten, they it may be the carbohydrate reduction that is right, improving right. health. I don't know that. Right. I, I believe people who question whether there is actually so much gluten intolerance right. in right. in America. Right. I mean, I was thinking just in terms of your book and your findings that maybe gluten-free was sort of starting as a as something popular to get people to think they shouldn't be eating all the bread that they're that they were told to eat by the heart diet people. Right, but the glu- it turns out that the gluten-free movement has been taken either the 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 you know Nutrition science is full of unintended consequences. So now there's all these high-carb, gluten-free products. Oh, okay. You can, okay. You can eat a whole diet of, of gluten-free, you know, muffins, cookies, cakes, and I, right, I would right. doubt okay. that that's a much okay. healthier diet okay. for most people. Now, what do you think about vegan and, and the sort of opposite paleo? So vegan and the vegetarian diet, the vegan diet is, um, it, it cannot, it, it's impossible for that diet to be nutrition, nutritionally sufficient. Uh-huh. Um, Not you know, enough just, protein. Just take vitamin B12, it doesn't mm-hmm. occur in plant foods. Most vitamins uh, and minerals are not as bioavailable in plant foods, mm-hmm. um, so you just cannot absorb them as well. You're, you know, iron, heme iron, you can't get that from plant foods. So it's hard without major nutritional supplements um, to be to have a nutritionally sufficient diet mm-hmm. as a vegan. Mm-hmm. Not impossible, but harder. Um, mm-hmm. In animal experiments, they also found that, you know, to you can be healthy as a vegetarian, but you have to so carefully combine your nuts, legumes, you know, to get your complete proteins, mm-hmm. all of that. It's a much trickier diet mm-hmm. to be healthier on. And in the same meal? You need right. to combine you to them. It's, your, you just can't. Um, your vegetables and legumes in the same meal to, in order mm-hmm. to make those proteins complete. So mm-hmm. you have to. It's a, you have to be highly conscientious Motivated. for that mm-hmm. diet to be healthy. Whereas, 
if you eat a diet that's high in animal foods, those foods all come naturally packaged with complete proteins and the fat that you need. And, you know, the fats needed to absorb the fat-soluble vitamins. And, mm-hmm. the, and, and those foods mm-hmm. are packed with the nutri- you know, all the basic nutrition that you need, mm-hmm. um, especially if you include organ meats, as people used to do. Mm-hmm. Um, the paleo diet is, is, you know, at the other extreme, and, and paleo... There's a whole range of what people, you know, what is paleo. A lot mm-hmm. of people in paleo don't eat any dairy. Um, right. And, I, you know, that became a movement that became a way to reclaim those foods that had been banned. Right, um, right. And it's, um, as in any movement, there's a whole range of different kinds of right. um, so interpretations of that. But, you know, in general, I think that many people become healthier just eating paleo because it, it emphasizes real foods. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. What's next for you? Well, I'm interested in working on um, trying to help bring these science-based arguments to nutrition policy. You know, oh. I really I okay. would love to see our nutrition policy based on firmer, better science. It's just so essential mm-hmm. for Americans. And, you know, I having now had this scientific background, I feel like I, I have something to offer in mm-hmm. that way. Now, does that mean, is that political? Is that another book? Is that... I'm going to mainly be doing more writing, you mm-hmm. know, more in some investigative pieces and, and, you know, more arguing, writing to just try to present the arguments for, right. mm-hmm. you know, why nutrition policy needs to change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is an important year because there will be uh, the next set of dietary guidelines are due out in the fall mm-hmm. um, at some point. So, so you know, I hope that those, they've, and they heavily, they've moved heavily towards a plant-based diet. I know. And as you know, know. only low-fat dairy, which is not good for cheese. Right, right. Um, you know, I, uh, the Fancy Food Show is going on in New York City the past day and today and tomorrow and I've so I've been talking to a lot of cheese people and telling them what book I was reading and who I was interviewing on the radio and it's hard even to cheese people who are very pro-fat and and pro-dairy it's hard to explain your book quickly so I think it would be great if you had articles everywhere explaining your book (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, you know, I do have a number of articles on my website. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal that became the most emailed story. Um, it was just a little over a year ago, um, uh, most emailed story in recent history, which kind of explains oh, cool. the basic saturated fat argument. Okay, good, good. We'll so, try to put and that that's on my website. Okay, great. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you. It was very educational reading your book. Um, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Diane, thank you for having me. And next time I hope I can see you in person and eat some cheese with you. Yes, yes, that would be (laughs) great. Okay, thanks very much. This is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd. I'll be back next month. Uh, This is heritageradionetwork.org. You can listen by podcast or on um, Stitcher. Thanks very much. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.